When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the bluest room in town. Yeah, they're actually funny. Yes, it is the Blue Room, fresh from another home defeat. Just when you thought Everton had turned the corner, everything was going to be fine. They give you a big slap in the face at Goodison Park, don't they? Uh, Joining me this week to make you feel better about everything are Paddy Boyland from The Athletic. Paddy, how are you? You're laughing laughing already. That's That that bodes well. Um, I don't know if we're going to make everyone feel better about everything, but we we can give it a try. Uh, and also joining us is Mick Green or Mick. How are you? Yeah, actually much better since you you asked the question a couple of couple of like hours ago. Was it might have been might have been less than that. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Give me credit. Yeah, credit there, yeah, for being prepared when I'm not usually that prepared. <laughs> I just I just thought of it as as I setting up the Zoom call. Uh, we will get on to that shortly. Uh, just before we get on, actually, I never say this, and I'm assured. But if you're listening to this on an iTunes app or anything, please do subscribe. Do give us a rating. Say nice things about me. Say terrible things about Paddy in the <laughs> comments. Um, same on YouTube as well. Subscribe. It all helps with the algorithm and stuff like that. Uh, I know loads of you listen to us, but it'd be great to get more people listening to us as well. So, um, And if you do it, I won't say it at the start of the show ever again because uh, it makes me feel awkward as a host. <laughs> we'll just move on. We'll move on swiftly. Um, we will talk about Luton, obviously. We'll also talk about Bournemouth. Uh, on Saturday and how big a game that is. But just sort of wanted to get off on a light-hearted start because I know it was pretty depressing on Saturday. Um, we've had some fun games over the last few days, haven't we, with the Reds and VAR and, and all that kind of stuff. And it was ramped up a notch today by Jürgen Klopp in his press conference who said that he thinks that the, the football match should be replayed from Saturday after that decision went against Liverpool. Um, yeah, I'm just going to just leave that one there. To hang for a little bit, but uh, to make it Everton related, I thought I would ask some of our listeners and I'll ask you guys if you could pick one Everton game from the past to be replayed for any reason you can think of, any reason you like, what would it be? Uh, I know Mick is much more prepared than Paddy for this, so I'll go to you first, Mick. What is your choice? Yeah, so look, there's like there's like three, but two of them are just less, I think, more... Um widespread I suppose in terms of the answers that I've seen in, in, in the Twitter replies. For me, I think Fiorentina at home would be I mean, just to repeat any game, I think that would be it's just one of them where you look at it, even if they just played the exact same like performance, you win that game, don't you? And then who knows what would have happened. And then I think another one I saw quite a few times was the um, the Palace at home under Martinez in his first season. However, I've got one that I think might top it all. 
that I don't think I've seen anyone else mention. It's a bit left field, but I think in terms of the the knock on effects to where we are today, I think it's quite quite big. And I was having a look at the table around the fixture, and I didn't realise it was that tight at the time. So I've gone with, um, and this kind of coincides with you know terrible VAR decisions as well, which the others don't. And that is the draw. I think it was a draw in the end against Manchester United's um, on the Carlo Ancelotti when Calvert-Lewin scores. I think that would have been a winner, wouldn't it? Yeah, it was 92nd minute, yeah. Yeah, and Sigurdsson was sat on the floor and I think um, wrongly it was given disallowed because he was offside or you know blocking the, the view of the goalkeeper. Um, I think Everton, and I think this anyway because I think COVID came with the well, it came at the wrong time for us all, but for Everton, I think it came at the wrong time. So I thought we were, I think that was some of the best performing Everton sides that I think probably for sure under the Machiri era, probably only rivaled by um, Ronald Koeman's Everton in the second half of his first season. But I didn't realise at the table at the time before that weekend, if Everton had won, they would have gone and just getting the table back up. If Everton, they were 11th at the time, which I think is probably why it doesn't kind of like clock that much but if Everton had won they would have gone on to 39 points and would have gone 8th but would have been 2 points off 5th Wow so proper sliding doors moment Yeah, I, 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 I remember at the time being just really annoyed that Sigurdsson had missed the initial chance because it was an absolute sitter yeah, wasn't it Yeah 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 it was and but I think, I think it, was, just... it was also fouled wasn't he straight after like Wamsaka yeah, comes yeah. across That's and why he was sat down, on the yeah. floor wasn't he yeah. Um, but yeah they would have been 2 points off 5th a point off 6th I think before that that game, I think um, between then and Ancelotti's first match, the only teams who had won more points had been Man City and Liverpool. So we were on a, the momentum was with us. And I think if we won that, I mean, another week later we got we got battered by Chelsea, but um, it's obviously a different story at, at Stamford Bridge, I suppose. But I think that the momentum could have been with us then, to because who knows? You know, if we'd gone on to actually qualify for Europe last season. I suppose that you know the people at the football club could have gone and said, well, you know, all that money that we've spent in the past is kind of, you know, it's, it's been, you know, it's worth it. You know, we've got European football again. You know, Ancelotti's definitely going to stay now. We're going to be able to invest even more money into the football club. You know, who knows what the knock-on effects would have happened? I know it's a, it's a bit of a long shot to say Everton would have definitely qualified for Europe because I think they were they were pretty dreadful in those nine games in in Project Restart, but. Um, before that, they were they were actually quite good. So so that that that's what I'm going with. Yeah, I thought this would make us be like nice, light hearted start to the show, and we'd have a few laughs. I'm just depressed again, <laughs> just thinking about that. Uh, but yes, bizarrely, I saw the video of that that goal today, and like we had, I think at the, at the time we had the, the team was just so mad when you look back at it, even though it's like two years ago. It's like we had Calvert Lewin, Richarlison. Moise Keane, Sigurdsson, Sadivi was on there as well in the box for some reason. I think Bernard played the pass in to set the goal up. Like, just changed so much in the, the course of such so a short space of time. But Paddy's, has Mick triggered any memories for you there? I think my memory, actually, and it's, it's not a positive one, but just before football, and I suppose the rest of society got locked down for good, I remember going away to cover Everton at Chelsea. Stamford Bridge, and I think it was a midfield too of Andre Gomez and I think Tom Davis, and Everton lost 4-0. So, I mean, I, I was ready after that not to watch football for a long, long time because they just got absolutely outplayed. And I remember just thinking, like, why are Everton playing a midfield too against these? They're just getting completely bypassed at every opportunity. And Billy Gilmore played for Chelsea and did very well. I think it was just kind of one of his several good performances for Chelsea. I think that was Anthony Gordon's Premier League debut that game as well. Could have been. They were playing in that, I don't even Pink. know how to describe it, like orangey salmon kit. Yeah. Um, and it was definitely, I just remember Gomez in particular looking completely lost out there in the midfield too and everybody kind of wising up to the fact that he couldn't play in that role properly in the, in the Premier League. <sighs> Unlike Mick, I, I do think that Ancelotti would have gone regardless kind of, of whether Everton qualified for Europe or not. And I think it's purely because if you asked him what's his club, predominantly he'd say Real Madrid. Even though he's Italian, I think he'd say Real Madrid. I think they, they just, whenever they came calling, he, he, it was almost as though he, he felt like he had unfinished business because of the last time. Whenever they come calling, he's going to go. And I think he loved the lifestyle in Madrid as well. 
So not entirely sure on that one. I mean, the, the really obvious shout is, is Villarreal. And I suppose if you've got grounds for a game to be replayed, if you're going to go down the kind of the Klopp histrionic route, then then you probably go for the Villarreal match because there's no way on earth that that goal should have been disallowed. I saw you saying on Twitter, Matt, that you could play it again and Everton would have lost. And you're almost certainly right. Kind of a very tough team to to, to draw in. I think Everton were actually, when Everton seeded and they weren't. Yeah. They somehow managed to draw the semi-finalists in the, in the qualifying round, an un, unseeded team in the in the qualifying round that year's semi-finalists with with some fantastic players when you go through with Forlan and Raquel May and I think Sorin was playing a fullback and and doing very well. So there's a good chance Everton would have lost that game anyway, but obviously we don't know. Um, it was a gross injustice. So that's a reason for it to be replayed, and had Everton qualified for the Champions League proper that season, then I think that the whole face of the modern history would look very different. So it's obvious, but I think it's probably the best the best answer. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd go Palace, the 3-2 Palace that, that Mick mentioned there earlier, um, in a sense that, like I reckon if we, if we try, I'm assuming that like when we replay this game, we go back to that time and we've got those players. And I think that, that night... Martinez played Barkley instead of McCarthy, didn't he? I think he's trying to be a bit too cocky, and we just got picked off on the counter attack all night through the middle by by Zahar. Um, and we went three one down. And then... That was the game that they get called off. So that we got it got called off in January because of the wind, isn't yeah. it? The very very wind night. You see, my yeah. problem with that is that I think they named a team for that game, and it was horrific. It was awful. Yeah, yeah. It was really. I think it was like Oviedo right wing or something. Yeah, like that. McGeady was in there as well, wasn't he? And so, I remember, I remember the time everyone was like, "God, thank God that got called off." But, but it's just mad that Palace game was like, because we were playing so well, everything was working so well, and they just decided to make that change. But I think Palace were in quite. I think Pulis was their manager then, wasn't he? I think he'd come in and like sort of galvanise them a bit. And um, just if, if you could go back to that night and just play McCarthy and Barry, who were like the mainstay of of that season, and, and I was doing so well. Like you look at that, and like if we won that game, we would have got seventy-five points that season. Like, you can imagine an Everton team getting anywhere. Well, that near still that. wouldn't have. That would still wouldn't have been enough, would it? I, mean, I know we could say that maybe the circumstances afterwards would have been different. Everton might have gotten a roll, and because Arsenal won every game, didn't they? Differently, yeah. but I, I, my, my sense was that Arsenal were always looking back at it now in hindsight. Arsenal were always likely to ch- chase Everton down. They were the, the experienced ones in that kind of situation. And even though Everton had a, had a very good team and probably did deserve a, a Champions League place that year, they were just that little bit better. Hmm. It's tough. Isn't it? If, if, was, it, was it Southampton we dropped points against after that as well? Yeah. Where we scored our three own goals or something. Yeah, we had Stones and Alcaraz as a centre-back there. And, I, and the Coleman and I think Stones scored own goals Yeah, in the first half. Right, I remember that was in the away and it was right in front of us and it was... I mean that that was the day when it like it really went, didn't it? And then we yeah. had the like, home game against City, where everyone was like, "Do we want us to win or not?" Because Liverpool were going for, for the title, and it was just yeah, just all got a bit messy from that point on. But and, like I can't remember that, but if, I remember that Palace game. It was like if we'd won, then it, we would have took like a, a huge. I think it would have been like four points ahead of Arsenal or something like that. And it would like you wonder how that would have impacted them then as well. So Absolutely. yeah, bit of a bit of a sliding doors moment. Uh, we did ask for for some people to give their, their answers on Twitter to this. Uh, Les Roberts says, the Palace game replay until we win. The United game before lockdown as well because the winner was not offside. Uh, Danny Malaya dug this one out. I honestly couldn't remember this until he found the screenshot. It was Arsenal at home when Drenfer scored and was five yards onside. This was in 2012. We lost 1-0 and Vermaelen scored for them. The, the screenshot is on Twitter for anyone to see it. It is bad. Uh, Maggie said uh, FA Cup final 2009 get Lampard sent off for diving uh, Matt Flusk Wigan in the cup at the tail end of Martinez Martinez then doesn't go on to get the job and Vito Pereira is currently driving us to our sixth title in 10 years Paddy's not having that one uh, <laughs> Mike Sullivan just because I'm still absolutely seeing over at the Clattenburg derby uh, Connor Bennett has said Rodwell Derby shouldn't have been sent off. Chelsea away 3 3 when John Terry was offside. And the United semi in 2016 purely because we had Mo Bessic at fullback. Everton still should have won that game. Yeah. It was. Yeah, the yeah, 
Yeah. Still the chances they had the penalty John Stones save. Was amazing that day. It was like, oh god. They, they, considering how many players they were missing and, and kind of it, how many square pegs and round holes they had, they they played very well, but missed the glut of chances and, and got done at the other end, didn't they? I think it was Martial. So you could replay an awful lot of Merseyside derbies. That's that's the thing that com- comes to mind. I mean, I've, I've just off the top of my head, I've got 07, 08. So that's the the one where Plattenberg. Plattenberg does everything wrong, um, and by his own admission was overawed by the the occasion. Um, the eleven twelve derby with the Rodwell sending off that was just ridiculous as well. Um, you could go you could go through many since then, I suppose. Um, which is why this this idea that every time a decision goes against you, it should be the game should be played. It's just ridiculous because you'd be playing games left, right, and centre. Wolves, Wolves would have to have half of the games replayed from the last <laughs> twelve months. <laughs> uh, I wonder whether there's going to be time for all of this. And just a couple more. We've had um, Steve Corley said, "I was going to say the seventy-seven FA Cup semi-final, but that was replayed and we still got battered." So you know, there's no guarantee when it comes to Everton. Uh, Mike Kirby says Fiorentina the away leg should have took a 1-0 loss back to Goodison instead of trying to get the away goal um, and LGK said the Clattenburg derby glass houses etc etc so there's loads there's there's absolutely loads oh and one last one last one from Jack um, the first leg of the League Cup semi-final under Moyes Sean Wright Phillips header I mean you could do the, the, the other one is Raheem Sterling carrying the ball about three yards yeah. off the pitch in, yeah. in a game that Everton were in a tie, Everton were leading comfortably. I don't think City get back into that game. Yeah, it's felt good this, hasn't it? Just getting all these off our chest after all these after all these years. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's cathartic or just making me even more depressed, Matt. But I'm, I'm sure we'll know soon. There we go. Um, if you watch us on YouTube, if you want to get anything off your chest about Everton's past, <laughs> just just leave a comment. Just leave a comment. There's nothing better than to click read more on a comment because it's so long and people are just getting so much off the chest. So uh, do that. Um, but yeah, let, let's talk about Saturday. Uh, I excluded Saturday, by the way, on Twitter from the games you could, you would want to see replayed because, you know, it, it's just too too soon to address it even then. But we're here now. We've got to talk about it. Uh, Mick, I will come to you first, mate. I mean, we, we, were you suckered in by them? Did, did Brentford and Aston Villa make you think this is this is going to change now? We're going to win three games in a week and we're going to bounce into that international break and, and into Anfield and... And everything's going to be all right, as, as it can be at the moment, given what's going on at the club. Well, yeah, because for me, it was a, a week of, of cases broken. You know, initially, we, we finally got our first win of the season in, in the league against against Brentford. And then we and, and I, for the first time, went to Villa and actually see us walk, saw us win. Um, and I was, in, I was in the home end for that. And I thought, I just remember watching this. I was like, this team is just completely different. To, I don't know, we've played relatively... Okay, I think compared to the the points that we've actually got, but I thought that the performance on on the Wednesday um, or week today against Villa was just was, it was just so so good. Uh, probably not as good against as, as against the one against Brentford, but I thought just to, to to go there and I think the reaction compared to when we were there in August, it was like it was chalk and cheese, I suppose. So I thought going to Luton, and I think a lot of the fan base thought that. I think there was kind of a whole. Um, I suppose a generalisation to think that a lot of people were actually optimistic going to Goodison for the first time in a long time. It was, it almost felt like the first game in a while where you know the, the, there wasn't a significant amount of pressure because we just won back to back games and and obviously you know we still and still are lacking that first win at home. But I think compared to the the first couple of games where especially you know there's always pressure on the opening day, especially when you're playing a team like Fulham to get that our first win and there was always the I suppose the, the semantics around not having a striker or having a striker. Um, you know, I remember looking before the, the, the game on the weekend that the, the last home game before Arsenal off from three was was James Garner, Lewis Dobbin and, and Dan Juma, which already which already feels a lifetime ago. Um it, it just I suppose it, it's not ridiculous to think it's not ridiculous to suppose like that's not a shock, I suppose, why we're why we're still winless at home and that was more or less our strongest team for the first two home games. Um, but yeah, so I kind of expected us, and to be fair to you, I expected a bit, a bit of like fluidity in, in the performance in the first half. I thought they'd come out and just come out the blocks and dominate and, and play with, I suppose, the, 
a sense of relaxation that the fans had at Goodison for the first time in a while. And I think, to be honest, for the first 15, 20 minutes, they were they were prob- they were more than fine. They they had I know they didn't have um, you know any real clear cut opportunities, but I think in terms of there wasn't more I could ask really from them. You know, they they they, they were dominant. They were in control. They were, um, you know, quite frequently entering you know key attacking areas. And I thought the actual game plan was paying off. Even with Garner on the right, I know that was probably a talking point beforehand. And who should have played there? And obviously, it was a talking point afterwards. But I, even then, I thought that was was completely fine. We played quite quite narrow, and it seemed to be working. And it just seems to as soon as Luton seemed to get like two one two corners in a row didn't he and it was almost like well you know was that was that 15 20 minutes was that was that it because I think it's I think it's growing um everyone's quite conscious of the fact that you know this team needs to score first to to, to seem to, to win a game of football and I think that obviously means having to score first in the first half so if you miss out um, on your opportunities early on, and then allow the opposition to gain a little bit, a little bit of momentum themselves. I think we've seen that in all three of the other home games. You know, Arsenal aside, where we've we've had the control for the majority of the game, and the opposition, you can you can kind of almost visually see them realise that there's you know there's something in this for them if they you know they put the foot on it. And I thought Luton did that at times. Obviously, you know, it's, you know they had set pieces to do that. It's not like the cards open or anything, but. I think for the teams who have been as good at defending set pieces that we have really since Dice came in, it's so frustrating to to concede two pathetic goals of, of that nature. Um, so you can't have any complaints. Well, we can't have any complaints, but from from Dice's side, you know that that's his bread and butter. That's been this team's bread and butter. You know they went to probably the best set piece team in the league in Brentford the week beforehand and and coped with it relatively fine, apart from one moment after we scored the. The, the second goal, I think it was. So you know they're quite clearly capable. So to to concede two goals of that nature, um, but yeah, I, I think really it's so hard to not look at it. It's just a massive missed opportunity because I think the whole um, semantics around the football club would be massively different if they've managed to win three games in a row. Um, I know one of them was in the cup, but the fact that it was against Aston Villa against a team that we'd already been battered by and still played a relatively strong side especially in the second half and and played so well um just yeah just so frustrating and i think kind of epitomizes in many ways everton under sean dice where they seem to kind of turn a corner whether it be with a solid performance and and ground out the result away from home or they've managed to actually win at home and then and then they go do they do something stupid like that Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, Paddy, that Mick sort of says there about the. It was a week where he thought it was going to break a lot of curses, and you know, bringing it round to like the, you know, sitting there in the first half, we've been done two set pieces, and listen, that it's annoying, it's terrible defending. But I'm, I'm sort of sat there thinking, like, you know, what well, these have got a plan. It, it can happen. It's, it's almost like made up, but it, you know, it can happen. You can get done on set pieces, and crucially, you think everybody in that ground. Between probably minute 35 and half time ago, and we need to get one before half time here. Yeah. You know, we really need to get one, and then all of a sudden the second half looks different. They'll yeah. be a bit more nervous and we'll come out flying. And we get and we get it eventually after the, the VAR, and you're thinking, right, here we go. The platform is there now. You know, the crowd they didn't, didn't get booed off, did they? The crowd were back on the side against this club before half time. Luton are probably a bit shaky. One of the centre offs goes off injured at our time as well. You and you figure right the the, pl- the platform is there now for you to go out and put this to bed. 
to get that third win in a, a week, to finally score more than one goal in a home game un, under this manager. You know, you're not going to get a better chance to sort of come back from two goals down to put a lot of this to bed. And that's why for me, in, in so many respects, I was, I was so much more disappointed with the second half than, than the first half, even though it obviously ends up nil-nil and we don't concede any goals in the second half. But it just felt like from the minute they kicked the ball off to start the second half until, listen, I mean, I, I walked out on 85 because I just couldn't watch it anymore because it was just so so excruciating. But from what I saw, it just felt like from the minute they kicked off up until the last kick of a football I saw in the ground, they just got worse and worse and worse. And it felt like they got further and further away from scoring a goal. Yeah, well, you, you expect after the goal just before half-time, you expect Everton to throw everything at Luton in the second half. And uh, I suppose they did to an extent. They they made changes. They went two up top, like a proper conventional two up top, and loaded the penalty area at every opportunity. But it turned out to be a damn squib. It's just... If you look at the chances they created in the second half, I think Beto is offside, quite clearly offside for one header that he put well over the bar. And then there's probably only another header for Beto, which I think he should score from, to be honest. That's probably the only kind of big golden opportunity after the break. Uh, kind of in the, in the match piece of it, I, I tend to write my match pieces as a reaction, more or less straight on the final whistle. So even if they go live on Monday, I'll, I'll write them on Saturday evening. And kind of my my thoughts at the time, and that thought has persisted throughout this period, was that Everton pressed the panic button way too quickly. If they carried on doing what they were doing in an attacking sense in the first half, I think they'd have got more opportunities and they'd have probably ended up getting at least a point in the game. So like you, I was I was more disappointed in the second half performance. Because it, I, th- I think it showed the, the limitations of Everton to a greater and truer extent than the first half did. I mean, as Mick said, that they've not always defended set pieces badly. Luton, Luton exposed some areas that will need to be tweaked. But the, 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 the true nature of Everton is this side that stumbles at home, that can't buy a win at Goodison now, with the worst record in the, in the Premier League of any side in the kind of over the past 13 months or so since the start of last season. And I believe even Leeds have a better home record than Everton even though they, they haven't started the season in the in the Premier League. So th- th- that game is almost more difficult for Dyche as a manager and for Everton as a cohort than Brentford or Aston Villa because you have your game plan in front of you in, 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 in those away games. You know you can have less of the ball. You know you're playing for set pieces. You know that most likely the target is get the ball up quickly to Dom and get runners beyond him. And that's where players like Ducore and McNeil, etc., will thrive. I think we saw a home against Luton, particularly in that second half, the limitations of Dyche's setup, but also the, the players as well. And going long into these two big tiring centre forwards was so basic, it was unreal. Exactly the kind of attacks. Luton would have wanted to, to defend against, I guess, if you'd if you'd asked them before the game. Exactly the kind of attacks they used to 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 play in against. And Everton had the blueprint there for them in an attacking sense from the from the first half. It would have been nice to see personnel move about. You could have you could have got maybe, I don't know, you, you could have still brought Harrison on. You could have still maybe you could have got Dan Juma playing just off Calvert Lewin or Beto. You you might have mixed things up a little bit, got Garner into the centre of midfield. But I think they lost control. Like the, even though they had more of the ball than, than Luton, the, the, the second half was played on Luton's terms with these kind of balls into the box that weren't ever really going to do too much. And then the other thing was the kind of the relentless time wasting. I mean, I, I asked our data guys for kind of ball in play stats. And I think only three games across the whole Premier League have had less actual football action in the match. I was re- kind of so stop start and... That's what I mean by Luton playing it on their terms. I don't think Everton asked enough questions. And but bizarrely, I'd kind of looked at the bench and thought, well, at the very least here, if Everton are going to go down in games, then if you've got Dan Juma, Harrison and Beto, then you've got a chance of, of mixing it up and getting results. So that, that was disappointing. That was, it, was, it was really quite disappointing and completely deflating after what had been a, a week of real positivity. Where, like Mick, you, you, 
saw the performance against Brentford, saw saw the performance and the result against Aston Villa, and I was wondering if this was going to start to turn for Everton, if Everton were just going to start to to kind of climb a little bit. Um, often that's where Everton bite you in the arse, isn't it? <laughs> Fortunately. Yeah, um, all, all too often, unfortunately. And yeah, I think you're right about the, the personnel. Like, I'm sort of sitting here now and I'm thinking, like, Everton should have finished that game with the two fullbacks as Patterson and McNeil. Like, the, 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 I don't think there's any reason why in the, in the last 10 minutes yeah. of that game. Yeah. You know, because Patterson comes on, does he come on about 85, does he? Maybe a little bit earlier. And Mikalenko stays on the pitch for the, the entire game. And I think the situation there in the second half, you know, the, the attacking the guard street in front of me. And McNeil, I don't know what he, what he was doing or where he was playing. It was it was absolutely mad. Like he, he seems to be playing off the striker, and Decore would drift into that position on the left hand side. So we had no whiff on the left. And then on the right hand side, we had Harrison, who obviously is left footed, and he'd get it and he cut inside. And Young. Let's have it right. He can't get up. He, he can't get up the pitch anymore. Yeah. He, he can't get up to support and offer that that overlap and run anymore. And even by Patterson just being there and just making that run around him all the time, he would have drew a man away from Harrison. All of a sudden, the pitch opens up for you. So everything yeah. was just getting so clogged all over the pitch. And it was like, yeah, it, it just seems so obvious what needed to happen. Like when when we brought on those t- those two centre forwards and what you know we've got to get crossed into the box. You've got to create space in wide areas on the right on our right, or you've got to have someone who is actually there on the, on the left. And it was just, it was just the same thing happening time and time again. And, you know, make it, I wanted to, to come to you on that because obviously there's been, there's been loads of stuff about XG and, and all that in the, in the bill, in, in the aftermath. I thought it was really interesting that the manager after the game said, well, you know, this isn't verbatim, but we won the XG. And then in quotes that came out from the club yesterday, it said stats mean nothing. So I don't know if someone sort of had a, a bit of a word for him there and said, you know, this is this has pissed a few people off. Can can you sort this out? But I think when when we get to this stage with managers, and it's happened so often down the years, we get into this perpetual cycle of we're doing terribly, and then another person will go, well, the manager can't get on the pitch and stick the ball in the back of the net for them. And we go round and round and round again. What is it you think we're we're seeing here with with this team now and? The, the pattern that we've been having at home because you know I remember that the first game of the season we spoke after Fulham and we said well if this is a one-off then it's all right because more often than not you know these things will even themselves I was in a sort of similar way to we had the Lampard last season where everyone was getting quite excited and you were very hesitant going well the numbers say that this is going to turn at some point and it's, it's going to turn badly did you sort of you're in the same situation now where you look at it and go this is this is going to turn well for Dice, sort of the inverse of that, or is it a bit of a, a different issue when it's attacking as opposed to defensive? Yes and uh, no, I suppose, to, to your answer. I I think, putting put it like a bit of a blank statement, I, I think Everton are a much better team than a team that has four points after seven games, I think it is, and I think they deserve that. Um, I think maybe there's a, a misconception, especially with, with when it comes to, to expected goals, that um, just because you create um, big chances or have good chances to score doesn't necessarily mean that you one deserve to win or two performed well. You know, I think I think you can have you know a, a flurry of good opportunities and actually quite played you know played quite poorly. Um, and I think that's okay for for, for that to, to you know to be the case. Um, I think it's Luton especially was. Um, there was certainly some good parts. I thought, well, I say good parts, but an interesting part to take away from it because I thought there was quite a, a noticeable effort made, especially in the first half. And I thought we saw it against Brentford as well in terms of how Everton actually set up and it looked like they'd actually tried something different. And you've hinted at it there with 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 McNeil and tried something different to actually break these teams down in open play. I just think it was probably counterproductive and is counterproductive with the with the players that we've got available. And I think, you know, I think if we all answered the question of where do we think Everton's creativity lies, it, it's out wide. And those players are, are Dwight McNeil and, and Jack Harrison. So generally you wouldn't want them inside. But I think that to me especially, it looked like the the, the game plan was to to get those players, Harrison less so in the second half, but McNeil particularly. I, I don't know whether this was kind of... Um, Part of trying to tackle the fact that James Garner was was playing on the right, so having those players favour inside was you know 
with, with to combat that. But I know Dice said, I think it was after his post-match press conference against Brentford last week, Paddy will, will obviously know better than me. I think he, he, he actually might have been his, his interview with the club, uh, but he wants McNeil to be given more of a, a freer role than he had mm-hmm. last season to be able to, in possession, to be able to, you know, I suppose, be able to drop deep, to be able to drop inside. And I thought we saw that, but that means that that left side then has to be dominated, I suppose, by whoever's playing at full-back. And, yeah. and obviously on the weekend, that was Vitaly Mikalenko. And I think you made a really good point there, Matt, that um, probably the last 10 minutes we, sh- we should have gone for, for McNeil. Uh, I, I didn't think he had a particularly good game on um, on Saturday, but we should have gone for McNeil at left-back rather than, than Mikalenko. But I think that kind of hinted the fact that that, was, that should have been the case because the the way in which McNeil was playing was he was so central that he wasn't the out ball anymore. Like I remember um, looking quite a few times last year at the um, the, the, the stat progressive passes received. Of, I mean, kind of self-explanatory. It's who's who's receiving the most progressive passes from the team. Who's basically the, the out ball? Who's getting um, played in? You know, for, into the most creative positions really. And the large period, especially when Everton played well, especially when Everton played well at home, it was always McNeil. You know, he was the one who was at the highest number. He was seen as Everton's, um, because there was pretty much no one else really apart from Alex Wobie. He was the main source of of creativity. Um, but on the weekend, it was he. I think he still might have been joint, but he was joint with with Vitaly Mikolenko, and, and Mikolenko had the, the most touches in, in the attacking third as well. And I think that kind of. Like to me, that that from what I saw, that was by design, but kind of also sums up the issues that I was and had. That the person who was who had the most touches in the attacking third is probably you know centre backs. Um, d- despite the centre backs, well, even though maybe you'd say James Tarkowski and Brandfight are, are, are all right on the ball, but you'd probably say Mikalenko is the least creative player in the side, and yet he's the person who's getting the opportunities the most in attacking areas. And I think that was. You know that was premeditated, and, and I think it's it shows it says to me that they're obviously trying something different, and they're trying to um, find new ways of breaking down teams like this. But whether it actually works or not in the long term, I, I'm not sure. Getting to your further point, though, I think I think what's really crucial is the the, the upcoming fixtures. I think after Bournemouth, it, it's Liverpool, West Ham, Brighton. Um, I think Burnley's in between those two, and then it, it's Palace and Manchester United. Those there's only to me really Palace, which seems like a similar game to to what Luton will be or, or what Wolves will be, teams in which Everton will be. It will be they'll be more like Brentford than 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 Luton, and I think that's that's got to be seen as a positive because the owners won't be on Everton in, in those games. There's always a chance that because you know the the, the people managing those football clubs are are, are relatively smart that they'll come and try and I think what we saw on at the end of, of Lampard's reign in particular, I remember. The, the Wolves game and, and the Southampton game in particular, where it's almost like the side the side came in and went, you know, you, we know that you're just not really going to do anything here, so you can have the ball and we'll just we'll just you know eat into all that space behind. So that that, that is a worry, but I think um, more positively, I don't think um, Bournemouth's manager Iriola is quite a purist, so I don't think he's going to come in and try and implement the same tactics that Luton did, and that should play into. Um, play into our hands. So I think that kind of might help coincide with the fact that um, if Everton are able to return to the mean, I suppose, and what their performance probably should have deserved over the opening weeks, we might see more points come out of maybe more difficult fixtures coming up. But I don't think it will have been because they've just been unlucky in, in a couple of weeks. Because I think they have been unlucky, but I think they've also been a little bit poor. But at the same time, I think they've still been much better than what we, what we were seeing last year. It, the, the points just don't kind of, you know, it doesn't reflect that. I suppose that, that approach towards the end of Lampard's tenure was a bit of rope-a-dope, wasn't it? It was just make sure you get, you give Everton the ball, they'll fizzle out and then there'll be a chance or two at the other end that you can take. And there was an element of that again on Saturday with, with Luton where they, they played heavily for set pieces, had fantastic delivery and fairness. From Doughty, who I, th- I thought was probably the, the man of the match on the day, even though he didn't score himself. Um, and then expose Everton's limitations the other way. But Everton were completely complicit in that. I mean, going back to the first half strategy, that, that mix outline there, uh, I think it was by design that you've got two very narrow wingers coming inside in Garner and, and McNeil. And then you've got 
Young and Mikolenko trying to fly past on on the overlap and provide the actual width. That's fine if you're Tottenham and you've got Pedro Porro and Udogi, or it's fine if you're kind of at Arsenal and you've got somebody like Zinchenko who can can create from those wide areas. Liverpool, if you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold and Robertson. But we have to be very honest about Everton's resources here and what Everton don't have, maybe with the exception of a of a, of a still raw Nathan Patterson, is, is kind of creative attacking fullbacks who are able to provide those kind of crosses. Maybe the option in some of those games, as, as you mentioned, is not only McNeil, but, but James Garner playing in that 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 kind of right back role and, and almost becoming a bit, a bit of an auxiliary quarterback, even though I don't like that term. Um that, that might be that might be an option. My issue with the second half strategy was that there didn't even seem to be enough cohesion to, to to get into those areas anymore. Everton stopped doing a lot of those things at all. And in sacrificing the midfielder and going route one. Not only did they play into Luton's hands, but they didn't even really have the bodies to sustain the attacks. And I actually, I actually thought there was a period in the game where Luton looked more likely to score a third than Everton did to to equalise. So there, there were a couple of different issues within each half. I think for for Dice to ponder, um, at least with regards to the attack. Thankfully, there are solutions here. <laughs> You've got the positional flexibility of Dan Juma. Jack Harrison, I think, will, will will end up being hopefully a really important part under Dice, and I think he's he's a talented player who can add goals and assists to the squad. Calvert-Lewin has, has come back and has been great in the main so far um, and certainly looks a step above even better. Um, so th- th- there are options here, but I still think Dice is searching for the right configuration of players, what works best, how it all kind of knits together. And I suppose that my, my slight concern here is that, or maybe it's a big concern, is that with the exception of Pickford in goal, the central defensive two, and maybe Calvert-Lewin up front, you could question kind of first-choice starters in each position here. I mean, who, who's, who's Everton's best right-back? Um, if they go with Mikalenko, can they play the way well, they try to Coleman, go? isn't it? <laughs> maybe, maybe, but then kind of left-back, if you go with Mikalenko, you have to understand what he is, and he isn't Leighton Baines or Luca Dean in the attacking third. So you have to play a different way there, and that means you probably need more width on left wing. Um, what configuration do you go for in, in wide areas? Do you play McNeil and Harrison, which is what I probably think he's likely to do moving forward? Um, does Ducore stay in the number 10 position, or do you need something more expansive there for, for home games? Um, and where does James Garner fit into all of it? So you, there's kind of five or six fairly key selection decisions for, for Dyche here, and it's great to have extra options, but you need to put the right ones on the pitch. And I thought second half, it was almost just like looked at the bench and said, I've got him. Let's throw him on. Um, and Beto and Calvert-Lewin are really tall. Elwin Headers need to do more than that in the Premier League. Uh, just every side there or thereabouts will lap that up because it, it's basic and it, it, it's not going to get the job done. So I think the, on, the onus is on everyone. This is not just about the players and it's not just about mentality as Dyche keeps on kind of wanting to to, to kind of talk about it's it's about kind of the standards across the, the institution and it's about kind of the manager and the coaching staff finding solutions to problems that are kind of rearing their head. Yeah, I think just to to, to go back to the the possession that we were talking about and I suppose the kind of you know difference between what Everton are, are good at and, and and what maybe sides want to see from Everton when they come and play us. I was just having a, a quick look while while Paddy was talking and we had sixty seven percent possession on um on Saturday, which unsurprisingly is the most Everton have had done on Sean Dice. It's just a ridiculously high number. Um but we were talking just a little bit before about how on the, in like the last couple of weeks under Lampard it almost felt like everyone kind of came in and just said, you know, you you can have possession, we'll just, you know, we'll we'll kill you on the break. So just having a quick look then at the five of Lampard's last seven games, so the two Bournemouth games, Wolves, Southampton and, and West Ham. Everton averaged sixty-one percent possession, and then in the seven wins that Everton have had under Sean Dyson, since they've averaged forty percent, and then obviously they had sixty-seven percent on on Saturday. So the, the, the blueprint's there for what works and what doesn't, doesn't it? Obviously, it's not as simple as is that because I'm sure there's been quite a few games where they've not had as much possession. 
you know, the, the Manchester United away, for instance, or Arsenal away last season, or Arsenal at home a couple of weeks ago. So it's not as black and white as that. But I think it's also quite simple that because of the, the cohort of players and, and the manager that we've got, that when Everton become the dominant or more controlling side with the ball, that there's, I think, I really don't think it matters what type of system is, is, is brought up at the moment. And I think it do, doesn't really help that we've gone from two very similar games in, in Bright, Brentford and, and Villa to, to, to Luton probably with one training game, with one training session probably in between those days. Um, it's not helped. But I still don't think the answer's probably there for those type of matches. And I think what really what really will come down to is, I suppose, hopefully, you know, um, I suppose the blueprint really is going to going on to score within the first thirty seconds, like they did against Brentford, where they can just, <laughs> they can just, yeah, you know, we, we are at home, but you can have the ball. Now. Um, I think just that's got to be the the blueprints. Yeah, just yeah, so disappointing, and I, I just think as well now, like when we talk about the the game at the weekend, like for me, Paddy, he's just got to make it a, a decision on on that midfield now as well. I think I think James Garner on the right will work maybe in a lot of away games. But I think in home matches, certainly those home matches that you know Mick mentioned there, where the onus has, has got to be on us. No, it's it's going to be three, three positions, and four of them are going to go into it, or or five if you want to class Dan Juma as maybe a player who can play off a centre forward in, in that decore role. And it just felt like on Saturday, like he didn't want to, not not necessarily not upset one of them, but he, he kind of made the the easy choice in there. And for me, looking at at Saturday and. You know, I've I've been very critical of Adrissa Gay and and what he what he doesn't do uh, for the team mainly, but I just think back to that second half and when we we're trying to sustain pressure and how easy Luton got out, and I think back to that first half against Doncaster and it was uh, oh my word, what the hell are we watching here? Um, it feels like Everton kind of need him to be on the pitch just to be the grown up and to to sort things out because. And I know Anada and Garner did well against Villa in midweek, but Jesus Christ, that 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 second half on on Saturday, it didn't really look, no, look like either of them knew what to do with the ball, what to do without the ball, and 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 certainly for me, I think it's got to be Adrisagay and then two others in that midfield. And listen, he's he's got a, a tricky decision to make, but I'm I'm not sitting here going, oh, how can you leave Anada out? How can you leave Decore? How can you leave James Garner out? Because I don't think any of them have been absolutely amazing necessarily. I don't think any of them could really complain if they, if they were left out the side, to be honest. But I, I just think in home games, it needs to be two actual wingers and then just make a tricky decision in midfield and go with it. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's an easy solution here, really, because in sacrificing any of the three starting central midfielders, you lose certain components from Everton's game. Uh, I, I think Onana continues to show an awful lot of promise despite maybe not always putting it together for 90 minutes. You, you sometimes see an outstanding 45 from him, but then he seems to kind of fade as the game progresses. First 20, he was fantastic on Saturday. Was, I, think, I, I remember saying to me, Dad, like, like in the ground, like he's, he's playing really well here, and then he just yeah. completely disappeared from the game. I mean, I, I, the same against Sheffield United away for me. I thought he was so dominant in the first 45, but then... That seemed to change after the break. Young players like him are going to have those consistency issues, but he he seems to be the one that provides the extra kind of defensive quality in there alongside Gay, who is the actual sitting number six, I suppose, in normally in in Dice's system. And I think I think if if you asked hundred Evertonians who should be dropped, they'd probably say Idrissa Gay, wouldn't they? That that'd be the most common answer out of, out of the three. The most common answer I imagine would be keep the rest as, as it is in the central areas, but take out Adrissa Gay and put in James Garner. My my issue with that is that I don't think you're substituting like for like. And in Adrissa Gay, you've got kind of one of the top ball winners in the Premier League still, even at the age of 34. Somebody who kind of keeps Everton ticking in a way that I think maybe we 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 only realise when he's not there, like the Doncaster game, like the second half. Um, and most of Everton's best performances come with him in. The funny thing with Gay is that you'll see his you'll see his pass completion. It's normally the highest in the team. And a lot of that'll be short stuff. 
But there's always every in, in just about every game, there's there's one or two instances where he gives the ball away in a really bad position. So he's not giving the ball away loads, but when he does, it tends to be in front of the defense and for a big chance, as it was against Brentford. Um so did you sacrifice him and put in Garner? Well, I I probably think Garner's a number eight at the moment. He's 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 the one that maybe goes box to box. But every time he's come inside Garner, and every time he's been given that extra onus, that extra creative freedom, I kind of feel as though he hasn't completely grasped it. Don Doncaster, first half, second half against uh Luton on Saturday, although there were tactical issues as well with the midfield being bypassed. Ducore is a really interesting one for me because he's 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 kind of both a strength and a weakness. He's 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 a sign of everything that's good about this dice team when it plays well, as they were against Brentford. But you also see the limitations when you're trying to pick the lock against teams at home. And he's not a number ten. I mean, I did an interview with him in in Evia in preseason. He said, "I'm I'm not a number ten, and this season I hope and think I'm going to play slightly deeper." Now that hasn't materialised, but. Everton don't have loads of options in that position. Um, so, so finding the right balance in there is going to be interesting. I think the, 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 the most likely solution here involves Dwight McNeil and Jack Harrison as the wingers, and then three out of four from Idrissa Gay, Decore, Onana and James Garner. Um, and you can make a case for any of them, really, in, in there. Um, at times, you're going to probably need more more kind of defensive solidity in there. So you're going to have to play Gay and and Onana. At other times, you might only need to play one of those or you you might you might be able to drop, I don't know, Ducore and play, play Dan Juma in the hole. What I, what I would say is that I think at the moment that they're still searching for that right blend and that right balance. And it's not completely right. But with Duke, with Ducore in the home games, it, it, it strikes me as though they're not able to sustain wave after wave of attack. He's, he's kind of he's better suited to doing what he did against Brentford, which is just running beyond uh, the, the main striker and providing that extra extra pair of legs in there. So it's 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 going to be it's going to be a difficult one. It's it's going to be a really difficult one. I, the, the only one I don't really see a place for, and I would like to see a place for him, but is Dan Juma. Like where does Dan Juma fit yeah. into all of this? Because you, you probably look and go McNeil and. McNeil and Harrison look like Dyche wingers in a typical sense. They do a lot of what Dyche wants a winger to do. Uh, Idrissa Gay, Onana, Ducore provide the kind of the legs. Dyche clearly loves James Garner. Where does Arno Danjuma fit into all of this? Because it doesn't not feel like a logical place within the setup for him right now. Well, it feels like he's just stepped into the exact same position that Damari Gray was in, doesn't it? Like yeah. you're only gonna you're only gonna start matches and if somebody else is is injured because I. I I don't quite trust you. And like it's mad to say that about a player who's, you know, really just starting October. He's not he's not played many games for us, but it feels already like he's in that position. Because like it, do you not but, think do you not think Everton would have been far likely to get something from that game in the second half if, if Dan Juma, for example, was playing off a central yeah. striker rather than in the second half either Decore in there or that DCL better experiment where it was just route one football all the time. Like, I mean, the, the, those two were horrendous together, weren't they? Like, the, it, like it, it didn't look like they'd done any work and training whatsoever, like playing together. Like, they were both challenging for the same ball. They were running to the same. It was, it was like just so bad, like and chaotic. But like, I think, mean, I think you're right. Like Dan, Dan Juma was when he was really good at Villarreal, played off a. I think it was Gerard Moreno, wasn't it? Like a yeah. a big centre forward, a sort of in like a, a strike partnership. So Do you remember when An- Ancelotti used to call. Richarlison, a centre left yeah. forward. It was almost like there's no real terminology beyond that in the in the game that exists already for him. He's not he's kind of not a winger, Richarlison, but he's he's also not your kind of your, your, your lone striker in a four three three, for example. He's kind of a bit of everything. He's like a hybrid forward, and I get that sense from Dan Juma, but he's he's not a wide midfielder for Dyche. and I think that's what McNeil and Harrison are. They're wide midfielders rather than wingers. He's not the lone striker for Dice because he's not going to have the physicality. So he kind of sometimes he'll play off the left, but but actually maybe that role alongside a, a centre forward is the best one for him in this Dice setup and that that kind of centre left forward thing. That that's where he did a lot of his best work at Villarreal, um, and and that maybe that's where he needs to play. But there's no evidence yet of Dice moving away from Decore and. 
and, and, and the system as it is. So he's he's the one I wonder about moving forward, Dan Juma. Because I see I see there'll be injuries and there'll be changes and ebbs and flows throughout the season. But he's the one I just kind of like where is he gonna fit in under under Dice right now? It doesn't seem particularly obvious to me. Yeah, especially, and you could probably say of of, of all the forwards you've got, probably the, the like most gifted technically, you'd say in terms of dribbling, shooting as well. So goal threat, goal yeah. threat, and like you, you look at the starting eleven on, on on Saturday in really simplistic terms. But the question I was posing to people was, how many would you back to get beyond five goals in a league season, and then do it again for how many would get beyond ten? And you could say Calvert Lewin, if he stays fit for a full season, will get you ten or more. Dwight McNeil in an average season probably get you around five. Decore in an average season probably get you around five. Nobody else is getting beyond that. So, so when we talk about Everton creating chances, having a high XG, that's that's all well and good. Yeah, but you need the lads there that are going to finish even at that kind of average, moderate level. Well, does does that is that like something like XG takes into account? Like, say if like Haaland had the head of the James Garner no. out of the weekend, would it would it change based on that? So, so but by by and large, if you've got like if you, if you take that into account, then if you've got a lot more players on the pitch that aren't goal scorers, then that sort of does that skew it a little bit in that in that sense? Like it's it, you know it's not an expected goal necessarily if, if you've got more players who, who aren't prolific, I suppose. But yeah, I just it's, just go on, it's, sorry, an buddy. It's, it's an interesting point. But last season, Everton, I think, with the second highest underperformance in terms of expected goals to actual goals, which suggests that their finishing was far less than the average. It's far less than the, the, the than the average the average quality. This season, after the game against, after Chelsea's win at Fulham on Monday, they are now the highest underperformers against expected goals. So Everton are not performing to expectation there and haven't done for quite a while, which to me suggests that they've not got, they haven't had, and maybe still at this moment they don't have the the, the right the right players. I mean, you, you look at the big chances, and I know the Adrissa Gay won is actually fairly low in expected goals terms. I think I think actually in my head it's a bigger chance than expected goals terms. The, the one player you don't want that chance to fall to is him. But like, me or you is it, more we're, we're more likely to put that away than address again. It it wound me up so much that chance. Like just because I, I I was right behind it where I sit and like he had like to his right it's the entire goal and no defenders. I'd rather I'd rather he hadn't shot and uh, <laughs> I know it's a golden opportunity, but I'd rather he just passed somebody and just passed oh, the ball. But the, so 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 that comes into it, and then there's an opportunity for James Garner, which is actually a high value chance from McNeil's clipped across. And again, you're not expecting actually James Garner to score there. Whereas if it's Calvert Lewin, it's it's almost certainly going in. So that this is a problem. Everton don't have kind of average level finishing at the moment. And the the only way that changes is if you get more of those guys onto the pitch. Who's who's going to take those chances when they present themselves? Calvert Lewin, maybe Dan Juma. I think Dan Juma is one of the biggest goal threats in this squad. How can they get him involved more? Jack Harrison probably gets you. He's not. I don't think he's a a supreme finisher, but I think you get over the course of a normal season, you'll get the evidence suggests you'll get your six, seven goals. Everton need to find think, more of those. That, that, that's the only way this changes, this pattern changes. I think there's a, a lot to be said then for, for Saturday to maybe go with, cause I, I'm probably with you, I probably wouldn't drop a, a, a guy, but I think you are left in a, a difficult situation where, you know, Ultimately, maybe what he adds can be in certain games replaced by by other players, and who can maybe add more. But I do think we missed them on on Saturday in the second half. I thought, yeah. especially I think in the first half, especially in that first fifteen twenty minutes, and then pretty much again in the last fifteen twenty minutes or last ten fifteen minutes, we were just really good at just maintaining the pressure, and that's what you kind of don't see from those type of players. But you know. Just being in the right position at the right time is is a skill at the same. If, if you know what I mean. But I kind of feel that maybe could that be replicated by by the core? Could you? I don't think he's good on the ball as as a dresser guy. But could could you maybe play him deeper in on on Saturday if you're gonna have a little bit more dominance, a little bit more control, maybe a little bit more time in our attacking areas, and then have him as someone who arrives late in the box? Because I know Anana's played that role at times as someone. Because I mean the sheer physique of him, I suppose, really. Um, and I know people have had complaints about that, but I suppose compared to Idrissa Gay, out of those two midfielders, he is going to play that position. But I think Degore could play that, and then that then opens to have him. Because I think you're absolutely right. Ultimately, 
Um, it, it, you can't really. Sometimes you just got to simplify it. Where having players who produce a, an element of, of threat on their own, you need as many of those players as possible on the pitch. And I think you're spot on, really, in that you do look at that team while individually they're quite good at certain things or you know lacking in other areas. There's just not enough goal scorers, and that is obviously not going to help. Where you know if you're creating good opportunities and not scoring them, that's that's your reason why. And that kind of my worry when it comes to the fact that. Is this team just going to stay unlucky forever, or is it a case of these chances are first of all not completely organic, I suppose, but um, are these just always going to fall to, to the wrong player? And the only way you can rectify that is by playing, um, you know, you know, attacking players as much as possible. And I suppose after Bournemouth, I don't think there's a lot of opportunities really in the future, in the short term anyway, to maybe try Dan Juma off Calvert Lewin or try to go right in a deeper role because I think. You know, Liverpool, West Ham and Brighton that will be more so what we've seen against Brentford and or will we hope. I think that's what the game plan will be. So I think maybe Saturday's the the opportunity to to go more of a four two three one and go Harrison McNeil and then Dan Juma behind Calvert Lewin. Because I think we said multiple times on the on the transfer show during the summer, Matt, that I, I just don't see Dan Juma as a as a dice player. He's not someone who and I don't think you know, I, I've seen speculation that oh, you know, I wonder if you know, Dan Juma's done something in training or did they, did they not get on? But I just don't think he, and I think rightfully so from what, what Dice wants, Dan Juma is not going to be a, a player who track, tracks back 100% of the time for a full 90 minutes. I just don't think that's his game. And you can't do, you, I just don't think you can change that for, a, I think, a 25, 26-year-old. You, you don't know, want him to be either, him. do you? You you want him no, to be the explosive no. player around the box. No, but I think it's clear that's what Dice wants from his wingers. That's why Harrison yeah. and like you said before, Harrison McNeil is, you know, mid wingers or wide midfielders to a team because that's what they'll do and they've got the engine to do that. Um which to me only says that the, if Dan Juma is gonna play consistently, it's gotta be off the striker because he's not the striker. Um and then and go back to my original point, I suppose, where there's not going to be many opportunities to do that in the short term. So I think yeah. you've, you've kind of got to try and test it on Saturday. Um, and I, I think it would be interesting to see that with with, with the Corre and, and, and Onana, um, whether it might be too much of a risk to not play the Jessica Gay after what happened on on, on Saturday. But I, I think it, it's something I'd like to see. But it, it, I mean, it might, you know, it might not work, but... It's not like the results are free flowing in at the moment, anyway. So, yeah, it's absolutely fine. By the, by the way, to to have different blueprints for different games, I think one of oh, the issues. Oh God, yeah, yeah. I think one of the issues here, maybe with the approach from Brentford to Villa to, well, let's actually take Villa out from Brentford to the next league game against Luton, was that you probably got a fairly similar approach with wingers inverting and looking to get beyond the, the, the main striker. The, the, the need for something else is quite clear, and I don't think it involves Vitaly Mikolenko getting to the byline and whipping crosses in. I, I just don't think that's the, the, the way Everton are likely to, to get any joy, certainly not Mikolenko's game. So it's absolutely fine to have that blueprint we've spoken about, which is Ducore going beyond Calvert-Lewin and... McNeil playing as a more conventional winger away from home or in games where you can have less possession. That seems to be Everton's best route of success at the moment. Where they're coming up short time and time again is when there's the extra onus on them, when they've got more possession, when they've got to create things. I mean, let's not forget the most creative player from open play by far in that Everton squad last season was a Awobi and he's left. So we've further entrenched this transition towards direct wing play, getting crosses into the area. There may also be times, by the way, where sides that aren't as physical as Luton aren't able to cope with Calvert-Lewin and Beto in the penalty area. But you've got to pick your battles. You've got to make sure that the, the game plan is tailored to the opposition. And instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, and a one-size-fits-all approach, which, which, which kind of suggests that you're going to get success against Brentford away in the same way you're going to get against Luton at home. So let, let's see what that is. I think there needs to be a bit more adaptability and needs to be a bit more of a thought into how Everton can break some of these sides down. And maybe that involves Dan Juma. Maybe it involves a reconfiguration of the midfield. It almost certainly would involve different personnel at fullback if you want to create from there. Mm. Um, so all of these things, that, and the, 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 a lot of these things were putting on the manager. 
that these are things, these are solutions for him to find. I don't think it's as simple as to say the players are making all the, the errors, uh, they're not taking the chances, and we need to improve the mentality and change the narrative around Everton. Some of that might be true, but there's also work, work for Dice to do here as well. Yeah, um, steered clear of the manager because I feel like we might be speaking about him a lot over the uh, the break. So we'll we'll get we'll get to, we'll get to that when we come to it. But you know, I, I sort of like moved on from the, the looting game, and then last night I saw the goal Burnley scored against them, and I was like, oh my god! I, I I'm not seeing it, and I, I'm trying to watch as little so football it, as possible. It was it was essentially um, goalkeeper past the centre back, centre back past the centre midfielder, centre midfielder past the striker, right through the middle of the pitch, and they score. Like free passes through the middle, awful. No long well, balls and six foot, six foot seven strikers is the way to go. <laughs> Sorry, Mick, what are you going to say? Luton have pressed them so so high though to give them the opportunity for that. And whereas you know on Saturday we just thought, well, you'll just you know ignore all that and just hoof it up as quickly as possible. And, and like Paddy's alluded to quite often already, that you know Luton would have been made up with that, wouldn't he? So yeah, just. <laughs> Just did me head in. Like even on Saturday, I sat there on the ground. I was like, there is so much space here for us to exploit, but we just we just can't. We're just we're just so yeah. Let's not revisit it. Uh we'll we'll leave it there anyway. Uh we've gone on gone on for ages there about uh so I'll trip down memory lane at the start, I think, which which took up the hour there. But cheers to Mick, cheers to Paddy. Uh do comment, do rate, give us a rating, all those sorts of things. Uh, we'll be back later in the week on Blue Room Extra Dave's team subscribers weekly. We'll have weekend preview, we'll have mailbag, and then we'll be back in the Denby Castle after Bournemouth at home. Uh, send shivers down your spine, doesn't it? Thinking back to that last day of last season, but fingers crossed it's the same result and we go to the international break. Happy, but cheers for tuning in. Up the toppies, catch you soon. Network.